from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. For many of you listening, the idea of spiritual reading is probably a familiar concept. You might have a book or two on your bedside that you pray with each night, something on the lives of the saints or new insights into old spiritual practices. Next to that pile of spiritual books might be a Bible, and each day you read a passage slowly, prayerfully. If you're like me, you have a bookmark in a dozen spirituality books, each offering the promise of encountering God anew. It's not hard to look for the Holy Spirit at work in books you found in the spirituality section of your local bookstore. But what about in the other sections? Fiction, sci-fi, romance, and memoir. Is the Holy Spirit at work in these books, too? Our guest today, Dr. Jessica Houghton-Wilson, says yes, to a degree. Her newest book, Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice, challenges us to look at all of our reading through the lens of spirituality. How is God inviting us deeper into our vocation, deeper into the mysteries of creation through the texts we spend our time with? Jessica is the inaugural Visiting Scholar of Liberal Arts at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. She previously taught at the University of Dallas. She's the author of several other books that explore this topic of saints, sinners, and texts, both those considered holy and those less so. She speaks around the world on topics as varied as Russian novelists, Catholic thinkers, and our topic today, a Christian approach to reading. As you listen to our conversation and reflect on your own reading habits, I invite you to consider Ignatius of Loyola. He, too, provides us with a helpful approach to reading. Recall that during his recovery from his cannonball wound, he wanted to read books on knights and courtly romance. Instead, he was given what we would consider spiritual reading, a book on saints and the life of Christ. God spoke to Ignatius in part through these texts. They were pivotal to his conversion. Even so, Ignatius goes on, right, to insist that God is to be found in all things. Not only the spiritual and religious texts, but every aspect of life. I think he'd be looking for God in every section of our local library. So, how might you approach your own reading through this Ignatian lens? What might God reveal? Things to reflect on as we welcome today's guest. Jessica Houghton-Wilson, welcome to AMDG. We're so glad you've joined us today. Thank you for having me on. So um, you have a new book. You have a, you have a bunch of books, but you have a new book, and um, I'm really excited about it. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by the title of this book, the title being Reading for the Love of God. So I want to start there. I want to invite you to tell us a, a little bit about your approach uh, to reading as an act of faith and, and why you, you, write, you decided to write a book about it. So the book really came to me when I was about four years old. And (laughs) well, you know, I'm being slightly facetious, but also I've been reading since I was a kid and I never thought about it as this, I have to do this or something that was academic or something that was only for school. I was reading because I loved it. So it was just in me to love the Bible love literature, love stories. And what I found is as I became a literature teacher, 
I was not receiving that same kind of love and joy from my students. So this book became my gift to my students. Why is it that they don't read for the love of God the way that I was reading? They were reading for answering the quizzes. They were reading for these short-term checking boxes, getting through the reading. And, and so I began with them. How can I get you to love what I've always loved and what has shown me who God is and who I am? And how can we change whatever poor ways of reading you've been taught so that you can be more free and read in, in this kind of eye-opening, heart-opening way. I'm really intrigued by that um, idea of, of how can we be more free to read, right? And and I'm, I'm assuming kind of inherent in that is, is more free to receive kind of what God is might be saying to us uh, through reading, even in, in books that are, you know, perhaps not obviously of a, of a religious nature, right? Well, let's let's dig into that because I think that's that's a theme certainly in your book, right? You're talking about how do we read um, good books, or what are good books to read that that aren't just aren't just you know the good book, the Bible, right? Um, how do we go beyond that? So so what, what what's your your trick for discerning you know what makes a, a book good versus bad? Uh, and then you've also talked a little bit about kind of salvation history being on display throughout uh, you know all of you know all of literature. So how do we how do we kind of tap into that as well? Okay, so I'm gonna start with kind of our end, and then I'll I'll walk backwards a little bit. There will come to be a point where the question doesn't have to be asked, where you have read so much, you will have developed a taste, the spirit will be working in you, and you will be able to discern, this is a good book, this is not a bad book, um, just by your wealth of reading. Until you get to that place, or especially if you have not been formed that way by certain habits, I would start with some easy questions. Is this true? Like, does this tell the truth about the world? And what I mean by that is not just fantasy. I mean, Lord of the Rings is true, right? It tells the truth about human beings. It tells the truth about where evil comes from. It tells the truth about suffering happens. Good people do not always prosper. Uh, It tells the truth, though, that there's also a happy ending, that ultimately there will be a victory. So does it tell the truth about the world? Is it good? And in that sense... Does it call you to live forth goodness is what I mean by that. Uh, do you read this book and think, I'm going to live better. I'm going to I'm gonna love my husband more. I'm going to stop shouting at my children more. Like I can feel that I want to be like these characters. I want to live in this world. I There's a certain vision of goodness that is better than the vision the world gives me. Right? And then, and then is it beautiful? Does it inspire me? Does it evoke... My soul, does it remind me that I'm not just mere matter, that there's something to me and it elicits that desire for something beyond beyond the self and beyond this world? And I think that that's what a beautiful work would do. So I just usually start with the true, good, and beautiful. And um, and if we have time, we can also talk about, you know, does it match salvation history? Does it match the creation, fall, redemption story? There's a lot of other ways of assessing its truth and its goodness and its beauty. I think, too, what I, what I hear you saying is like... Um, or maybe what I don't hear you saying, but I bet it's kind of buried in there too, is this idea that that the certain books like stick with us, like themes kind of resonate and rattle around in our heads for you know days and weeks and years following. Um, what what about those kinds of of themes? Why why do certain things? Why are certain things kind of you know quote unquote sticky um, when when we are engaging with with literature? And and what is God doing in that? So God is higher than us, and His ways are higher. So a lot of times the things that stick with Christians are, 
And and I'm going to say with Christians, because I don't think this is necessarily always true, but the way that the spirit works, I think, is it's drawing us to things that are challenging, that are higher and that are beyond us. Works that pat us on the back or works that are merely entertaining are not going to stick with us. It's like, I talk in the book, I use the analogy of like, it's like eating cotton candy. It's something that's just easily digestible. It doesn't ask anything of you. And it doesn't, nothing remains, nothing, like there's nothing nutritious, there's nothing flourishing from that. Whereas works that scandalize us with their truth, right? The son of God is a human being. (laughs) Things that are just like, they make you dwell on them for such a long time. Books like that, I think, is is calling us for these higher visions. It's it's moving us beyond what is comfortable for us. I, I call it scandalous. And I don't mean it in a Ginsburg sense of it has a lot of cursing or it has a nihilistic view of the world, but rather it scandalizes us because there's something truth that's mysterious that we have to meditate on to get there, you know, something that transcends reason in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back a little bit to um, the salvation history question and maybe, um, uh, I don't know if this is quite right, but I'm thinking, so I just watched... 1988 George Lucas film Willow for the first time a couple a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. Excellent. I mean, Excellent I am film. from my childhood, but yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Well, so I, I'm way behind the times. So I just watched it. Um, but I, I was really struck, right? And this isn't a spoiler for anyone who might still want to watch 1988 film Willow. Um, but, you know, it opens, right, with um, essentially, uh, you know, a, a potential, um, you know, a new ruler of the kingdom is being born, and and there's there's prophecy that this is going to overthrow the the rule of the land, and and the and the queen in charge now is out to kill this this young girl, and um, and obviously that already has with it all of this kind of like you know mythological sense, but it's also like you know right out of the out of out of the birth of Christ, right out of the Moses story, because right? you also have you know uh, the, the kid ends up escaping via the river, putting a basket down the river to an un you know an unlikely place. Um, and so for me, that like immediately, I'm I'm now you know quote unquote reading the whole story um, with this lens of well that's the Christ story, um, it, it, but but of course like it 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 you know it, Willow is not a religious story it's 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 again as you say it's it's fantasy so it's true but it's not so it is that a little bit of kind of like where we find salvation history in these things or am I um, just still just really excited about having watched no (laughs) i think that's absolutely true and this is you know this is honestly this is why i love reading scripture too because the the more that i go back into the bible and i look in the old testament i see things that i know to be true because of the new testament that to me is is the same kind of eye-opening experience like when you look at like crossing the jordan river you look at when it's brought up again in the elijah and elisha story and then you look at it later when it's john the baptist and jesus these kind of repeated patterns if God is writing the whole story of the world, he's also writing it in the revelation to draw our attention to it. And then we're going to retell those stories because they are the truth that's written into very existence, right? And he highlights it for us in scripture, but then we get to echo it when we make our own cultural stories. And so the most true, good and beautiful stories are the ones who echo what they see in scripture, even though they're telling the story in a different way, um, like Willow. And when we find that, I think that's when we're finding what's true. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it was, uh, Richard Rohr, the Franciscan, um, I think, but I'm going to obviously, if it was him or not, I'm going to butcher the quote, but, but I think there was, there's something like, like, I think there's an impulse in, 
kind of culture at large to see like the story of Christ, you know, Jesus story as, oh, that's the same myth being told again and again. Um, and, and it's nothing more than a myth. See, can't you see that echoed throughout the rest of, you know, religious history? And I, I think it was, I think it was uh, Richard Rohr, but maybe, maybe not, maybe it's other people as well. They say, or, or let's turn that on its head and say, maybe it's not that that's just the, the myth echoed, you know, we're telling the same story, but actually, the, of course, that's how God acts in, in, in the world. Like, that's the story we know. And, and if, if the story is, is the, is the one in which um, God would naturally be in, in play or something to that effect. Do you have, do you know what I'm talking about? Is, can you say it better than I do? Yeah, no, no, that was fantastic. So I, right now I'm using my own book, even though it hasn't come out. I had advanced copies. I gave it to people at my church and we're walking through it as our Sunday school. Like that's what we're doing on Sunday mornings. And so we nice. just did creation myths. How do we read these creation myths? And what you notice when you read Genesis 1 and then you read like the Canaanite Babylonian creation myth, um, the Chinese creation myth, and, and I'm speaking broad categories, a Native American creation myth. When you look at them, there's some commonalities in which, yes, because the world was created by God and God created each of us in his image, we have these inclinations. We have these uh, stories written inside us. So, you know, for example, the Native American story, the bald eagle creates man out of clay and then realizes she can't be alone. So he puts a feather next to her and is going to try to create a woman. But what you notice is the differences between revelation of the truth and also the creation story. So there's a commonality there. But then when the differences are obvious, it points to who God is. Mm. Right? Like, Say more about that. Yeah. So, for example, in just that one evidence... I mean, the bald eagle is is the highest symbol that human beings could come up with in the Native American culture to symbolize that high being. But it's ultimately an animal, you know, because mm -hmm. human reason can only take us this far. But when God reveals himself, he reveals himself differently. He's not reliant on our human symbols, on our cultural ways of understanding things, um, on our ability to go only so far, our limitations. He can actually step in. So if you look at Genesis, for instance, the very first word of the whole text is Elohim, right? It's God begins with himself. He tells you who it is that created the bald eagle. He tells you who begins the whole story. Uh, he reveals more to us than we could see ourselves, in that right god created god hovers over the the void that all these creation stories they all have a void but in the void matter was created sun stars and they don't know who did it right even ovid like first century is saying like god or kindly nature we don't know created these things these things there's no agents there's passive sentences because they don't know who to put in charge of the creation that happens Right. It's without agency until you get to the Genesis narrative. And it's like God created and this is how he did it. God spoke. Let there be light. And light was there. And it's like, like incarnation already, like say the thing. And the thing is like there's already this amazing connection between matter and spirit. And, and, and God's just in charge of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. And I, I um, I, I, yeah, like to kind of like speak. God speaks, right? And that story is within us, as you said earlier. I like, I like that connection there, and um, and even I think there's an invitation to kind of the contemplative, you know, like as as we try to make sense of all these stories and 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 find God, at, you know, the center, you know, beginning and end of all of them. Um, you know, how do we, how do we turn? How do we kind of turn our, you know, again, as you said, like let like God be God, and um, and and uh, just kind of you know meditate on that. Um, 
so maybe maybe a a way into that right back to our topic of reading um you know yeah I think folks are probably accustomed to the idea of, of spiritual reading as a spiritual practice, right? You you have your collection of spiritual books, and like as you you know you pray through your year, here's you pull a different book off the shelf. But I think what you're arguing, right, is that reading in general can be a spiritual practice. So I'm wondering if you can um, give our our listeners a little insight into how um, they might begin reading spiritually uh, with whatever book they're reading. And and I'll tell you, I have a Star Wars book I'm reading right now. So how can I turn that into a spiritual? <laughs> I mean, it's a spiritual process for me, yeah. but 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 maybe you can just enlighten it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the spirit can work in, in lots of different ways through various avenues. I don't think that everything that we read becomes spiritual. So if you read like a manual for how to fix your car, right? I, I mean, there's a usefulness there, and I differentiate from this in the very beginning of the book, but there's reading for use. So if you're only reading for information... Um, you're only reading because it, like you have this, it's very selfish nature, right? And it's supposed to be, um, I want just to please myself, right? I, so if it's a book that's just pleasing you, it, it is the cotton candy, you know, it's cotton candy. That's all you want to read. You want to read this fantasy trilogy, the trilogy that's like 1100 pages each book, right? That's a certain kind of pleasurable reading. That's not necessarily a spiritual reading. It doesn't mean that the spirit can't be at work there. But it's a lot harder to have those kind of moments of humility, self-emptying, generosity towards the text, calling on your memory as a, as a moral responsibility in the effort of reading it, meditating, attentiveness. I, all of those things that can happen are also not just dependent on the, the person's disposition, right, to enjoy the work rather than to use it but also dependent on the content as well. So there's a there's a what you're reading, how you're reading, right? That's going to lead to the spiritual reading. I um so uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think re- uh, based on my understanding of, of, of your writing, um, regardless of the text of what it is, there's an opportunity to always practice charity, right? Towards towards reading, and I think that was. That was really helpful to me because I feel like there's so many times when I'm reading something, I'm like, oh, what was this person thinking? This is insane or this is lousy writing or, you know, I could do it better, or, you know, any sort of number of uncharitable thoughts. Um, but but again, as far as, you know, reading for the love of God, um, you know, how are we how are we cultivating and practicing virtue? Um, I was really struck by that invitation. So so maybe again, you can you can talk to, to our listeners a little bit about um, the different kinds of, of opportunity to to practice and form virtue in the act of reading. Um, you know, what, what are they? How, how can folks get started? Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis is actually really great on this and experiment and criticism, though I do find it's a harder text for 21st century readers to read. And even a lot of uh, British people I talk to, they say it's such stuffy British <laughs> prose that they find it hard to read, too. So maybe it's not just the fact that it's 100 years old. Um, well, not even 100 years old. It's 1960s. Um, but, the, but the text itself is basically arguing you should start first by assuming that the author has something to say. And Lewis says, you may find out they didn't deserve that compliment. <laughs> they didn't deserve your time. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but you should always start with the assumption that they have something to say, that there's a reason for this book. And I think too often, at least the way I was taught to read, was more of a healthy skepticism. Be careful of this text. Be careful of what it could be doing or what it could be showing you or how it could influence you or how it could warp your thinking or its worldly ways, especially if it was written by an atheist. And that that skepticism a lot of times shuts doors in which God could have an avenue for working, but we've just hardened our hearts towards it. 
And, and I think about this in terms of people too. How often do we see certain people and we immediately have a skepticism because of what we think they're going to say or what we're going, you know, what po- political position they're going to hold or what religious position they're going to hold or what kind of person we think they are. And those closed doors, you know, again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he says, if you start by meeting a person, you assume everything out of their mouth is going to sound ignorant or evil. You're going to find that they only say ignorant and evil things. Right. And it's going to be the same with books. Instead, if you open yourself up to the book and you assume it might have something good, you might find something good there that you wouldn't have found if you shut yourself down to it. So there's some virtuous practicing that's uh, self-emptying. It takes you out of yourself. I mean, the very... The more times you can practice selflessness in a day, right? That is a that is a virtue that is moving you towards sanctification. And so the act of reading can actually be a participant in that, right? It can actually be a spiritual practice towards that. Yeah, and our, our listeners might um, those you know folks as they're thinking about Ignatian spirituality, Ignatius puts right at the beginning of, of his spiritual exercises right this invitation to always assume the best interpretation of another's um, words, uh, you know, unless proven otherwise, right? And and then to keep to continually try and say, well, you know, what is this person really thinking? How is God at work here? Um, you know, how can we how can we get to the the good? Um, so another, uh, I, I thought it was really cool, your kind of discovery of the Trinity in, in the work of the act of reading. Um, and, and, then, and then you talk about um, these three letters, A-R-T, as, as kind of a way of, of engaging the text and understanding the text. I think that kind of goes with what we're talking about, you know, understanding the different, you know, the different players involved in the reading. But I won't spoil it. You can tell listeners what, um, what, how the Trinity is connected and then what A-R-T, um, what those letters mean. Sure. Well, I, and I'll start back vice versa, actually, because ART. So um, I was teaching the art of reading in a graduate class at University of Dallas, and I had just titled it just kind of off the hand, the art of reading. But we started the class looking at Aristotle's rhetorical triangle, which is the, the relationship between the author and the reader in the text. And suddenly realized, <laughs> if you look at the relationship between the author and the reader of the text, you've actually spelled the art of reading. So it becomes this very helpful mnemonic. But what I love about Aristotle's triangle is all those points are intention. There's not one, there's no hierarchy. It's not that the author's intention matters more than the reader's experience matters more than what the text actually says. And in current 21st century literary theory, you divide up and you only, you have to pick between those three. You either just look for the author's intention and that's what the work means, or it's only what the text says itself, or it's only what you feel it says right, as a reader. And instead, taking all three of those, I felt even more permission to do this when I started reading Dorothy L. Sayers wrote The Mind of the Maker. And she talks from the artist's perspective, every time you create a work, so for her fiction or playwriting, every time you create a work of literature, she's thinking in terms of what God's doing as the author of this creative idea the text, the creative energy that actually makes the thing come to life, right? And then the creative power, how it's going to then be received from readers or audiences. And that trinity that's at work when you're a creator, to me, of course, that also is at work when you're the reader experiencing this this manifold, um, almost embodied sense of where the author is in the text and how the reader is, is in that community as well. So so I took Aristotle and I took Dorothy L. Sayers and I took permission from the Trinity and thought, yes, this is exactly what the reading experience should look like. 
And also, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's probably not hard for folks to come up with their own examples, but, you know, as, as we go further in time, right, you know, certain authors in certain time frames are like, oh, like, you know, they, they, they maybe weren't the best person at that time, but their text was so important and I can still learn from that. And, and being able to bring the person of the author into dialogue with your, you know, the, your experience as a reader and then the text itself and, and saying like, you know, there's, there's flaws all around here, but how do we bring it into dialogue you know, with today? You know, I think it just allows for that conversation to continue and, and folks to learn even from, you know, past mistakes and, and, and such, right? Yeah. Well, and I think when you, ter- when you apply it to scripture, then you also have a multiplicity of readings that opens up. Because you have the author who is St. Paul, and you can study the life of Paul and look at him in context and try to figure out why he was writing what he was writing. But then you have a larger author, and when you look at Paul's letters in the collection of the entire Biblio, right, the entire collected works of God as the author, and that opens up an entire new ways of reading Paul. It doesn't discount the other way of reading Paul, but it, it just allows for the text to speak beyond itself. Same with readers. Paul's writing to a specific church in Corinth, but he's also writing to us in the 21st century to different readers, and it allows us to see different things in the text and hopefully become better readers of the Corinthians than we would be if we didn't recognize the different readers that were there. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I want to talk. So, so you, I, you and I first kind of met um, at the Catholic Imagination at University of Dallas, as you, as you said, and you, you gave me a shout out a little earlier. Um, and um, you know, so I had that kind of that lens of the Catholic Imagination um, as I was approaching your book, and then you had this great question, I think, in like Appendix, you know, two or three, right? Um, that that says, uh, "Why do Catholics have all the good literature?" Um, which made me chuckle. So I, I wonder if you could unpack that question for folks. I mean, listeners might not realize that Catholics have all the good literature, or that's a, or that. <laughs> but um, but but what what is that? What's at the heart of that question? What does that mean? And and um, and obviously there's good literature in, in all sorts of religious traditions. Um, so so how does that how does that work? So I you know I wrote this book coming out of what I was teaching, but also having been speaking for the last five or six years regularly. Every time we do Q and A. I, I just had to start adding an appendix for like, this, these are the questions I get asked every time I go somewhere. And one of them is, why do all the, the Catholics have all the good books? And I think there is partial truth to this, as I mentioned in the appendix, in that, that there is this tradition that has never fled creating literature. And even if you look at the early, you know, the, the church fathers, the patristics, you have Augustine and Basil constantly saying, like, let's read other books. We, we, we read the Bible and then we go read Homer and there's other things that we read. And so there was never a fear in the church of reading things outside of scripture. That fear kind of takes place between the 1500s and 1700s and, and, and I would say even has its hangover effects in the post-1750 era. I mean, you look at the letters of, of Thomas Jefferson, for example, which he's like, everything is trash that's not written morally or virtuously or didactically. And if you have that legacy in which you should only read things that are going to be morally uplifting, you're going to end up with works of literature that are only like Pilgrim's Progress, right? It has to teach you something. It has to be didactic. It has to comply with scripture and everything else has to be thrown out. Whereas in the Catholic world... You didn't have that fear. You didn't even have that hang up. You didn't have that over your shoulder looking and saying like, are we doing this correctly? Instead, you could create, it was a fully embodied experience the same way your worship was in which you could create from that. You could draw on the things of this world that had sacramental resonance to them 
that had never lost their sacramental resonance. You could talk about trees in meaningful ways. You could talk about water in meaningful ways. Um, and a story didn't have to line up with the, the Aesop's fable of the scripture or the moral lessons of the scripture. Instead, you would allow the creation in the story to do its own work, right? Um, for the salvation story to unfold in whatever kind of fiction or poetry you were writing. Yeah, I, I, um, I think, again, thinking back to, I think it was Andrew Greeley's book, The Catholic Imagination, I think the, the first paragraph, he says something like, you know, the, the world is dripping with grace, the holy is lurking behind every corner. And I, I just love that because it's so visual. Um, and then again, it, it's it's very, um, you know, God is, is in all things. And so all things can be revelatory and, and speak to us something of God. Uh, and then how do we translate that to other people, right? How do we, you know, put that down in some creative work? It could be literature, it could be, you know, anything else. Um, um, but, uh um, but of course, there is there is good literature. Can you, can you say anything about the kind of the tradition? Um, so that's the kind of the Catholic side. But then, how, how are other um, kind of Christian traditions or um, or any other kind of religious imaginations? Then how do they grapple with and interpret these um, these truths? What, what's what happened there historically? Well, I, so I would say that Protestants are coming around to that. But a lot of Protestants, when I've taught phrases like that, you know, because I've taught David Tracy and I, you know, I've taught some of these Andrew Greeley works. And Protestants' hesitation is that sounds like pantheism, or that sounds like Platonism, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they don't they don't baptize the good that is in Platonism and say, well, there's a Christian version of Platonism that actually works with Scripture, and instead there's a pushback, and the pushback is that we can't take the things of this world. I mean, this is also why you have in Luther and Calvin this hesitancy to even read allegorically, to read spiritually, to read even in the words as though there's a spiritual meaning as well as the literal one. So when you subtract all of reality down to its material or or uh, literal meaning, the kinds of stories you're going to get are going to look more behaviorist than they are sacramental. They're, the world is not charged with the grandeur of God <laughs> in, in that sense. <laughs> um, in, instead, you have this material universe and it has fallen and you can't use certain things. You can only use those that are, that are baptized. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's look, I know you have a particular interest in um, Flannery O'Connor, who, who is, uh, uh, you know, definitely in the, in the Catholic canon, right, of, 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 of authors. Um, and, and you use one of her, her short stories to, to exemplify some of the insights that you, you tease out throughout the book. Um, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, kind of what draws you to her and her kind of legacy and her works, and, and then what has been most surprising to you um, as you've, you've learned more about her. So I started studying Flannery when I was 15. When I was a teenager, I wanted to write fiction. And again, I was raised in a Protestant church and the stuff I was writing was real dark and gritty. And my parents, I think, feared for my soul. So they were asking that I write things that are more full of light and joy and happiness. And so I was taking- You turned to Flannery O'Connor. Right, well, <laughs> what happened was I was taking all my talent and I was turning it into like PBS sitcoms that I was creating. And a professor at Rhodes College, I did this like summer teenage camp program for gifted writers. And he's like, you have a talent, but you're writing these horrible, like Saved by the Bell imitations. What could you do with that talent instead? And I explained I was a Christian. He wasn't. But he's like, if you're a Christian who likes dark things, here's Flannery O'Connor. And I had no idea who this guy was. So I started reading The Life You Saved Maybe Your Own. It was brilliant. I imitated it. I won this national short story contest where I like went to DC and was at the Kennedy Center and like, you know, Hillary Clinton gave me my award or whatever. And I was like, this is the secret to success. Like <laughs> Landry O'Connor is the secret to all good writing 
you know, forever. And so I started studying her when I was 15 and just thought, I want to know everything she knows. I, I read Mystery and Manners multiple times and just thought, yes, like this is exactly right. Um, this is the way the world is. The world is dripping with grace, as you said. There's so much here that we can all draw on to tell these stories and and the spirit will work through them and in them. And that's what I see in Flannery's fiction is that she's writing these stories from her own time in her own place with so much attention dedicated to the particularity of them. And then the spirit is opening up what they can mean. I mean, you look at the life you say maybe your own just as an example, that tornado that is coming at him, but it is the rottenness of the world that is coming after this villain in the, in the story. And even the villain is not just a villain. There's always potential for good in him and none of her characters are reduced to that. And, and so in her world, in her cosmos, it's very much this medieval Dantean imagination in which there's multiple senses, there's multiple ways of reading. I mean, she, she imitates the scripture to such a degree that I think Protestants, Catholics, I mean, it's Catholic in the highest sense, right? Like a little C Catholic, the way she opens up the world to us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, um, and wow, I didn't know you were such a, a short story award winner, you know, from when you were 15 <laughs> years old. Jeez, it was, I would have, uh, would have started with that. Um, I'll put that in the intro. Um, no, it's, it's great. And I think it really, um, yeah, it, go, it goes to all the points you're making about the power, again, the kind of stickiness of the beauty of, um, of, you know, uh, good, good storytelling, good, good literature at, to, to, to kind of help us transcend ourselves in some ways and, and kind of connect to something bigger. Um, and then it's cool. I like, I mean, I like your story cause right. It's, it, it just jumpstarted you into this, into this world of, of, of literature, uh, and, and, you know, the spirit. Um, so I wonder at, at the end, by way of closing here, I know throughout the book, you, you invite us to kind of consider the, the, the reading habits, you know, as it were, right. Of, of these various kind of saints and sinners of, of the past. So can you give our listeners maybe just a few little tidbits, um, uh, from, from some of the, the kind of the, the holy lives that you've been studying, um, that might help. Um, them, our, our listeners, uh, continue to read for the love of God. So one of my favorite things from Augustine is that there can be multiple ways of reading things. This overcomes anybody who has the little English teacher on their shoulder saying like, what is the answer to this book? What does it mean? Um, instead, Augustine's like, if it increases the love of God and increases the love of your neighbor, then it's probably a true interpretation. Mm. And I just, I love that openness. There should be a lot of freedom in that for people who have been very narrowed in their ways of reading and um, afraid of getting it wrong. <laughs> and so I think Augustine helps us there. I also draw from Julian of Norwich. One of the things I love about Julian is she actually lives the book out. So there's this professor at uh, University of Virginia, Mark Edmondson. He says, why read? And he said that, that the tale of a good book is that you can live it. And Julian does that. She actually, in her biography, shows us how she lives out the Bible. She lives out these revelations. She lives out what it means to be a reader. And that should be the test of a good book. Does it make you live it? And I think we, we should all desire to read things that help us live well, right? Um, and then Dorothy L. Sayers and Frederick Douglass are the other two models that I draw from. Douglass, because he recognized that reading gave him a vocabulary for the things that he felt and thought, but didn't have the words to. And I find that inspiring. I think it was Barbara Brown Taylor or Brene Brown, or their names kind of get confused for me. Um, but somebody was quoting one of these brown women. Um, I don't remember. You're going to have to like look up like in your show notes, like actually put the person's name there. But um, was quoting this author who said, people don't have an emotional intelligence. They can't 
discern what they're feeling. They, they either feel sad or happy or scared, and that's about it. And books give us this, like, I feel slightly anxious about this and excited at the same time. And I might be also afraid, but also elated. It gives us more of a vocabulary for the things we feel and think. And we get that in Douglas. And it, it shows how liberating in that sense art can be. And then finally, Dorothy L. Sayers, paying attention to the words, translating them so they don't become overly familiar, but have a new life all the time. And Sayers does that. She goes back to the word again and again. What does it actually say? What does it actually mean? And how can I say it in this time and place so that people really hear it? Awesome. Jessica, thank you for joining us on AMDG. The book is called Reading for the Love of God, How to Read as a Spiritual Practice. I will uh, be sure to put some some, uh, links in the show notes. We hope you'll come back again sometime. Yeah, thanks so much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series, Now Discern This, by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. 